Welcome to this podcast episode from the Historical Society of the New York Courts. My name is Chris Kwok. I'm a mediator and arbitrator at JAMS and, uh, and a board member uh, for the Asian American Bar Association of New York. I'm joined today by Judge Randall Ng, former presiding justice of the Appellate Division, Second Department. He's currently of counsel at Meyer Swazi English and Klein PC and Trustus Emeritus of the Society. Welcome, Judge. Thank you. Good morning. Today, we're going to be discussing uh, the Honorable Randall Ng's life and work, and it's truly a, a historic one and one that we should learn from and to know about. And so it's a really wonderful um, you know, a chance uh, to really get a sense of uh, history and of the community uh, that we're part of as lawyers and also as Chinese Americans and also as Asian Americans. Uh, Trent Randall Ng has many, many firsts in his career. Uh, first for me as a Queens kid who grew up in Flushing, uh, George Randall Ng was the first ADA anywhere in New York State. And he was uh, an ADA in Queens. And he started in 1973. And that was when many of the post-65 immigrants, uh, you know, from Asia started coming to Queens. But Judge Randall Ng's family has a, a longer history. He's part of a different wave uh, of immigration uh, to this country. And um, why don't we just get into it? Um, Judge Randall Ng, welcome again. Thank you, thank you again. Yeah. Well, so, you speak of uh, early waves of immigration. My mother, who is uh, presently 98 years of age, was born in the United States. She was born in Cleveland, Ohio in, the, um, in 1923. And she tells me that uh, her family was one of the first uh, eight Chinese American families in the entire city of Cleveland. My uh, father uh, immigrated to the United States in 1937 at the age of 15 to join his father who was already here. And my father served uh, in World War II in the United States Army Air Forces. And he flew in B-17s uh, out of England. My mother had a uh, interesting childhood in that uh, at the age of nine, she and her family returned to China from the United States in the depths of the depression. I, I say, um, an unusual story because of the irony of it. We all know that because of discriminatory immigration practices, uh, many Chinese Americans were denied entry to the United States, even though they had a legitimate right to be in this country, uh, being um, the children of, um, of citizens and, uh, and other statuses. However, uh, when my, my mother's family returned to China, they uh, were escaping the Great Depression in the United States. That was why they went back to China. That's why they went back to China, because they thought that uh, uh, life would be easier in, uh, in China. And uh, my grandmother was very fearful of my grandfather uh, dying and leaving her with five children and, uh, and penniless. So they went back to China in 1933. However, uh, they began to return to the United States gradually. First my grandfather, and then my uncle, and then um, an aunt, but my mother and uh, her younger sister remained with my grandmother. She didn't want to come back to the United States because life was too hard uh, for her. And um, they stayed with her through the end of World War II. 
Where were they in southern China? In, they were in southern China. They were in uh, in in San. They were in um, in Guangdong province, in in San. And fortunately, um, uh, despite the uh, the economic hardships, they um, they they survived the occupation of southern China by the Japanese. Hmm. And then and my and my parents met in. Uh, in China, after World War II, my father went back to China to get married. So he mm -hmm. went back to uh, his village, and uh, as I understand it, the village matchmakers said, "Here's a perfect couple over here." And that is that uh, he, of course, has been in the United States as a veteran and wants to return to America. Uh, my mother was born in America and speaks English and, and knows something of the U.S. culture—a perfect match. <laughs> When your we mother, for 72 years. When your mother went back to China, did she speak Chinese fluently? Oh, uh, yes, she did because her parents spoke Chinese. I see. But, I see. Um, she, didn't, um, she didn't read or write it. However, okay. she went back at age nine and was able to, uh, to learn written Chinese. So wow. um, she was uh, and is completely bilingual. Right. Fascinating. And yeah. still alive and still with us. So it's amazing. It's great. Yes, yeah, she is. She's 98 plus. And where is she right now? In Queens? She's in Queens. She's living uh, in an assistant, uh, assisted living center uh, near where her home was. So where's that? The, um, her neighbors or former neighbors can still see her. Oh, wow. Where is that in Queens? It's in Kew Gardens. Kew Gardens. Yes. And she, um, she came from, uh, she had a home uh, for 52 years in Briarwood, just mm -hmm. south of Grand Central Parkway. All right. And is that where you grew up? So you were born, where were you born? Oh, I, I actually was born in, um, in, uh, in Canton, now known as, as Gongju. Mm. And that's because my parents married in China and oh. we wanted to return to the United States, but there were many, many delays in travel. So I was born there, but mm. I was brought to the United States, brought to Queens at the age of six months. Mm. And so, did did your parents move to Queens because because like oh it's a nice area we got an we can we can grow up in a in a house you know like why did they choose Queens at that point that's in the forties right that was in uh, 1948 when they, 1948. they returned to New York and uh, and Queens in particular and actually they uh, they chose Queens because my my father uh, was raised. Um, in uh, first in New Jersey and then in Queens, his his father, my my grandfather, had a laundry in uh, in Richmond Hill, Queens, mm. and uh, I think he liked the area, and he um, he bought a business. He bought a uh, a laundry and a dry cleaning shop in Queens, which he opened in 1949. So he was attracted. They were attracted to Queens. Where were where were those businesses located? They were in Jamaica. Jamaica. They were in Jamaica. I uh, grew up literally in the shadow of the uh, Jamaica courthouse on Sutton Boulevard, literally. Presaging what would come up, come, come, become, your life would become later on. Yeah, 8811, and I was assigned there as a judge for five years down the line. <laughs> we, we have a family picture of, my, of my, uh, my mother holding my sister, my younger sister, and myself with the courthouse in the background, and my sister became a lawyer as well. So you talk mm -hmm. about the irony of, uh, of history and of pictures. So we so, grew up in the shadow of the courthouse. So before we get to sort of your eventual sort of becoming a lawyer in, in, in your career, tell us a little bit about your childhood and growing up in Queens and, and how that was. It was an experience that um, 
was subdivided into several categories. And that is that uh, we, uh, we attended public schools. When my sister and I were in PS82 in Jamaica, Queens, for the six years that I was there, uh, we were the only non-white students in the entire school. There were no persons of color, there were no Asians, there were no African-Americans, there were no other persons of color uh, in the school. We, uh, we had a house, my, uh, my parents bought a house in 1951, uh, among the first Chinese-American families to, to buy a home, and certainly in Queens, and we were the only Asians in the neighborhood. So uh, we were surrounded by, uh, by neighbors with Irish and Italian surnames. And uh, we got along very well. My, my parents um, uh, have always been um, uh, congenial and, uh, and reasonable, and our neighbors were, were reasonable. We, uh, we had a happy childhood growing up in that neighborhood of Jamaica. But uh, contrast that with um, the, uh, the business, my, my father's laundry and dry cleaning business. We were, uh, again, in a uh, legal community. We were two doors down from the Queens Bar Association. There was a law office upstairs over the laundry. There was a law office across the street. So um, at that time we were surrounded by lawyers and um, the, uh, the population, the community was largely Jewish. So we had an interesting situation where we were the only Asians anywhere and um, uh, serving a community of predominantly uh, Jewish customers uh, and, and living in a, in a community uh, predominantly um, Irish and Italian uh, with Catholic uh, heritage. So it was an interesting mix. And of course, all our relatives were Chinese. So right. it, was, uh, it was an experience. So let's, let's go to, uh, to law school. You go to law school, still pretty close to home, right? Yes, I, um, I, went, um, I went undergraduate to uh, State University at Buffalo and I enjoyed it. I had a good undergraduate experience. And I was accepted at the Buffalo Law School uh, because of the, uh, uh, the tuition and the, uh, the region's scholarship availability. I could have gone tuition free there. Hmm. Well, I thought about it and I spoke to um, some mentors and uh, thought it would be a better idea if I had my legal education in New York. Uh, the, the chances of having any kind of a reasonable legal career in the Buffalo area was slim, and um, it was thought that I would probably benefit from a legal education in New York where I would be um, uh, making my way. So you go to law school in- I Jamaica. went to St. John's. St. John's Law School. So it's still law very school. close to Jamaica, and, and it's really almost next door as well, right? Well, it is. However, I was the last class to uh, start and finish in Brooklyn. I oh. remember having to drive by the Queens campus with the law school under construction in order to get to school. <laughs> I didn't want to wait a year or two to start. Oh, I had no idea that it was in Brooklyn at the time. Yeah, so you were like, look at that building. I could have gone to law school there five minutes away from home, uh, but here I am going to Brooklyn. <laughs> yes. Well, St. John's, uh, St. John's was in Brooklyn at the time uh, on Skirmhorn Street in Brooklyn Heights. And, uh, among the other schools I was accepted at was Brooklyn Law School. Oh. Uh, I chose St. John's. I chose St. John's partly because they had the only Asian American law faculty member anywhere. And that oh. was Professor Kenneth uh, Wong, 
who, uh, who taught contracts and uh, corporations, among other subjects. And I, um, I, I thought St. John's was a hospitable place at the time for mm. Asian American students. There were very, very few Asian American students in law school at that time, the late 1960s, early 1970s. The demographics were completely different. Right. In my section of 150, there was only another Chinese American student and myself uh, as the only persons of color, and there were six women. <laughs> so <laughs> you could see the, the tremendous change uh, now in the demographics of the law school population. Are you noticing the beginning uh, sort of, of the immigration of the, the new wave of Asian immigrants to Queens at that time? Well, uh, as far as the uh, waves of immigration, uh, from I would say from 1980 onward, uh, the number of Asian American students in the law schools has um, expanded uh, tremendously. And not just, not just Chinese Americans, uh, Korean Americans, Vietnamese Americans, uh, you're seeing a, a broad representation uh, of Asian groups in law school. My, my sister um, had a career as a school psychologist first, went to law school a little bit later. And uh, I could just see from the makeup of her class, the, uh, the tremendous changes in the law school population. So you graduate from law school and uh, take, us, take us from there. All right, graduating from law school. That was in 1972. And I wanted to begin a career in the private sector in the law. And as people had cautioned me before I started law school, not many opportunities for, for Asian American new lawyers in the private sector. I got a few interviews, um, not much uh, interest. Uh, I was denied interviews that I thought I might have qualified for. And then it was mentioned to me that, well, why not try the public sector? And I said, well, I, I would, I, I will do that. And I applied to, um, among other things, um, uh, all of the district attorney's offices in the metropolitan area. No interest, except in Queens, except in Queens. And I was appointed by then district attorney Thomas Mackle in 1972. And uh, I became an assistant DA in 1973 upon admission to the bar. So uh, it was an opportunity, it certainly was. There was no interest among the other DAs nor in, in other public sector um, opportunities, but I, I had an interest in criminal justice and it just happened to come together in that uh, public sector, uh, more open-mindedness in employing persons of color and uh, my interest in uh, criminal justice. So I was there for eight years. I, I left as a um, bureau chief in the uh, Long Island City uh, Trial Bureau. Mm. There were five criminal parts then in that courthouse in that period of time. Hmm. So that's, that brings us to about 1980. You know, 1980, exactly. What do you do then? In 1980, the correction department had beckoned. Now that's because the, um, an assistant DA in Queens, uh, who later became a Supreme Court Justice, um, Larry Finnegan, uh, had taken a position as the Inspector General of New York City Correction. And he needed a deputy. So uh, we're calling... Um, uh, our experiences together and um, thinking I might have interest, and I did. He appointed me the Deputy Inspector General of the uh, Department of Correction, involved with uh, 
departmental disciplinary matters, um, investigating uh, complaints of violence against inmates, uh, and generally uh, involved with the integrity of the office. Uh, he, uh, he left to take another position in city government, and I was appointed by the Commissioner of Correction then, Benjamin Ward, as Inspector General. And I held that position for two years until 1983. Hmm. And then what after that? 1983, I, I was appointed to the New York City Criminal Court by then Mayor Koch. And I was uh, all of 35 years of age at the time. But Mayor Koch had a, um, a vision of shaping the bench into the 21st century, which he did. Some of his appointees are still on the bench. <laughs> yes, after all that time, because he liked younger appointees. Uh, also, he liked people from uh, his city administration. Correction is part of the city administration. He's like, you guys have government, you can do this. Yeah. Yeah. He liked former prosecutors. So I, 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 uh, I fit, the, fit bill. the bill. Yeah. And, uh, and as an aside, uh, in 1983, the, uh, the correction department, the city government, wanted to, uh, to build the, uh, the White Street Jail in Lower Manhattan as a replacement for the tombs. Mm -hmm. Well, you can imagine how upset the Chinatown community was by that. And they had demonstrations, a march on City Hall and everything else. So I think at that time also to deflect some of the criticism, uh, the administration uh, uh, looked at me as a judicial appointee to try to deflect some of that criticism. So when all of those things came together, I was appointed a judge of the criminal court. And how long did you spend on the criminal court? I was in the criminal court uh, from 1983 to, um, to 1990, when I was elected to the Supreme Court in Queens. I served on the criminal court for about five years and made an acting Supreme in the late 1980s and then elected in 1990 to a full term. Mm. So that in time uh, brings us around the time to 1988 uh, when the New York State Judicial Commission on Minorities, as it was known then, and it was led by Franklin Marshall, for whom the commission is now named, and it held hearings on the status of minorities uh, in the legal profession. Can you t tell us a little bit about your memory of those hearings in, in that time? Well, there was a, uh, a genuine paucity of um, minorities uh, in the law, in the judiciary, in, um, in the district attorney's offices at that time. Things were just beginning to turn around. But um, I have to say that um, in Queens, the, um, the first African-American uh, Supreme Court justice was only elected uh, in, I think, 1970 or 1971. There had been no black Supreme Court justices prior to that. In 1990, when I was elected, uh, I was the, uh, the first Asian to be uh, nominated uh, in Queens. Peter Tom, who was elected in New York County, and I were elected the same year in 1990, but we were the first to be elected. I, um, I, I do remember that um, uh, those hearings focused on the, the low representation of persons of color in the legal community, and then they traced it all the way back to um, low numbers in law school and, um, and the paucity of persons of color in decision-making positions, certainly, in, um, 
in, the, in city legal agencies, uh, on the bench. It was a problem with, that was multifaceted and it continues today. We saw the chief judge's recent report uh, was, uh, was more optimistic, but certainly showed that um, there was much to be done. Now, the commission, the New York State Judicial Commission on Minorities and, and its hearings became the impetus uh, for the creation of Abney. There had been separate Chinese-American bar right. associations and uh, in separate Korean-American bar associations. How was the Chinese-American bar association and the vibrancy of it uh, at, at, at that point? I, I'm not that familiar with the history. Well, the, um, the associations uh, had relatively few members. I, I, I think it was difficult in order to get uh, a critical mass of, um, uh, of lawyers of Asian background at that time. That's why the, um, the formation of Abney was, uh, was more useful in that area because it, uh, it pulled together Asian American lawyers from all backgrounds. Uh, uh, up until the 1980s, the, uh, the number of Chinese American lawyers in New York uh, was probably uh, somewhere around a dozen. I, I think I knew everyone personally until um, until the early 1980s. I, growing up, the only uh, the only Chinese American lawyers that uh, that I knew were in Manhattan Chinatown, and they were solo practitioners for the most part. And they served the Chinese population of China. That's it. They did immigration right. work, uh, some right. transactional work, <laughs> and, right. uh, uh, and never went to court. They weren't litigators. So um, I think that, uh, that Abney, of course, uh, was formed in recognition of, uh, of these issues. I can remember being at some early meetings. Um, Judge Denny Chin was uh, our host for, uh, for several of those early meetings. And, uh, and Judge uh, Doris Lynn Cohan. And um, let's see, who else? Rocky. Rocky Chin, yeah, so you know, a, a handful of, you know, really motivated and energetic people. Right, and, and Abney, of course, today is one of the largest and most well-run sort of uh, minority bar associations uh, in, in large part to all the hard work of the founders, presidents, members, and of course, of Yang Chen, uh, you know, the current executive yes, he's director. he's a very dynamic executive director, yes. Right. But tell us a little bit about, you know, sort of the growth periods, because they were up and down periods for Abney. Well, you know, yes, that is so. That is so. You have to, uh, of course, see the timeline here. Uh, early on, you had a lot of participation from uh, persons involved in, um, in governmental work, um, such as myself. And then you had persons who were doing work with the Human Rights Commission, agencies like that. And then slowly you began to see the um, participation of those in, um, in, uh, in private practice in, in mainstream firms. I, you could just see it. You could just see the gates beginning to open. You saw more people coming from, uh, from the firms and from firms of uh, increasing prestige and, uh, and name recognition. And, and you saw that they were, were motivated to have a, uh, an organization that could coalesce around. You also had uh, active judiciary committees that, um, 
that, that were involved in identifying candidates, Asian American candidates for, for judgeships, vetting those candidates, advancing them. Our um, early dinners were, were modest affairs. I can remember being at, uh, I think it was the Peking Park restaurant, uh, Park Avenue in the 40s. And then from there, the events grew larger and larger and we needed larger and larger venues uh, until we uh, are at our present stage where we, uh, until the pandemic, uh, hosted uh, events seating hundreds in, uh, in high profile venues. And uh, regarding the ups and downs of uh, the fortunes of Abney, of course, um, things are always tied to leadership. So we've had in our, uh, in our past leaders of, of great effectiveness and leaders of uh, not so great effectiveness. So I, I think that the, uh, the results uh, reflect that to some degree. And the fact that, uh, that Abney has remained a prominent and readily um, recognizable is um, a great tribute to those founders and those who have uh, perpetuated the, uh, the good name of Abney. Yeah, and, and Abney's growth, uh, along with you know, uh, finding the right leaders at the moment of growth, of course, also grows with um, the increasing numbers of Asian American attorneys. You know, the children of the post-65 immigrants yes you know, that went to law school in large numbers. And as they began to come into the, into the, uh, the field, they, they, they found leaders like yourself from the old school, uh, so to speak, you know, that were practicing sort of like uh, a little bit lonely uh, for a long time. But then increasingly, I think you saw waves and waves of new Asian American lawyers. And I think that also sort of, you know, increased the um, vibrancy of Abney as an organization, right? Agreed. Yes. Um, so let's get back to 1990. So there you are. And, and how long are you at? Are you at the Supreme Court at that point? Or is I, am. Some... I was elected in um, the election of November 1990. Mm -hmm. So I took my seat in Queen's Supreme Court, uh, January 1991. Mm -hmm. And uh, at that time, uh, my experience was uh, in criminal. And the great demand for judges was in criminal. Uh, I can say without uh, fear of contradiction that uh, up to two-thirds of the judges in Queen's Supreme Court were assigned a criminal. And you had judges with civil backgrounds uh, dragged kicking and screaming into the criminal term because that's where the demand was. That was the, uh, uh, the peak of the, uh, of the crack, um, uh, crack crimes and uh, homicides and everything else. And as I might have mentioned earlier, I was in Long Island City, but we had... Uh, Supreme Court criminal term parts in all three of the Queen's courthouses, Long Island City, Jamaica, and Kew Gardens. And Sutton Boulevard, as you may know from your legal practice, is not designed uh, as a criminal courthouse. Uh, I, was trying, um, I was trying murder cases on the second floor, uh, which had outside windows and, uh, and no detention pen. And that is absolutely unheard of for trying uh, high-profile cases involving uh, serious charges. But that's what we had to do. They devoted two floors in Jamaica alone to criminal cases. So I, I was assigned to the criminal term uh, then in, um, in 1991. And except for um, some civil experience 
in the Jamaica courthouse, when I was there for five years, it was, um, it was criminal. And uh, my, my career in the uh, Queens Criminal Court, Supreme Court rather, uh, lasted um, into 2007. In 2007, I was named the administrative judge of the um, criminal term of Queens Supreme Court. So I had responsibility for the operation of uh, all the criminal courts, Supreme Court parts in uh, all three courthouses. And I served in that position until 2008, when I was designated to the appellate division by then Governor Spitzer. So I had a long run in Queen's Supreme Court uh, as a trial judge and as an administrative judge. And then after that? With so after that, I was, uh, I was designated to the appellate division and I got there in, in 2008. I served there in the appellate division as an associate justice for five years. In 2012, I was designated by um, Governor Cuomo, Andrew Cuomo, to be the presiding justice of the appellate division in the second department. And uh, I served there until uh, the end of December in 2017 when, uh, when I retired from the court. Uh, I was age 70 then, and as you know, the, um, the presiding justices have to step down uh, after they reach age 70. And I decided that I would uh, pursue my original ambition and uh, try my hand in the private sector. So after retiring as a judge after 34 years, uh, I became of counsel to the Meyer Swazi firm in, uh, in Garden City. So now I'm in my fourth year, having realized my ambition to, <laughs> to practice in the private sector. So you were, you were certainly ahead of your time and waiting for society to get to a point uh, where uh, it, it, you finally, uh, well, actually society was ready for you. And uh, <laughs> Well, I uh, actually had some uh, very positive experiences as a, uh, as a judge, but uh, I might've left even earlier because I had so much time, of course, uh, in, uh, in government service. But every time I, uh, I was thinking about it, along came an opportunity, either a, uh, an assignment that I liked, a promotion, or, uh, or a designation to the appellate division, which you can't turn down. Right, right. right. So that, uh, that kept me in, uh, in, in government service uh, for a full career. Right, right. And rewarding, I'm sure. And, you know, uh, and, and also a series of firsts for the Chinese American and the Asian American community. Yes, I um, was always aware that in uh, New York metropolitan area, which is the... Um, uh, the largest, most significant legal community in the United States, we were so far behind in, in having um, Asian Americans in high profile positions uh, as lawyers or as judges. I, I became the first uh, Asian American judge in New York State anywhere in 1983. It took that long, 1983. And if you look at um, the histories of uh, of Asian American lawyers in California, um, Hawaii, elsewhere on the West Coast. They were Asian American judges in the 1950s in those places. So it took a long time for um, the New York community, the New York legal community to catch up. Why do you think that was? I think it was largely because of um, the lack of involvement in, um, 
in governmental circles, in, in politics by, by Asian Americans. I think they were more savvy in California and uh, in Hawaii earlier on because uh, all judgeships have political components regarding uh, achieving a judgeship. Of course, in New York State, we have uh, mainly elected judges. That's a political process. Even the appointed judgeships, the Court of Claims judgeships, is a political process. You're appointed by the governor. Uh, federal judgeships, as we all know, require the blessings of uh, U.S. senators and, uh, and Senate confirmation. That's a political process as well. So in my experience, I've noted that um, excellent judges can come from both processes, appointed uh, and elective. They can come from either one. And you can get um, judges who um, um, are disappointing in their performance from either source. Uh, there is no panacea. Uh, I, I say candidly that uh, there are no purely uh, meritorious appointments. Uh, there are no pure meritocracies, I'll put it that way. Mm. There are flaws in, uh, in both. And uh, uh, I, I personally favor a um, uh, varied access to the judiciary. There are some people who uh, could never be elected a judge who should be rightfully appointed. And, and there are others who are um, uh, who elected, who would never pass muster in the appointment process. Uh, it just goes, it goes both ways. Many paths, not just one path. Oh yes, no, no, yes, yes, sure. Yeah, there are, multiple paths are, are, are ideal uh, because, because of that. There, there are some people who are um, very qualified to be judges and uh, have spoken to me about it, but they say they, they disdain politics. <laughs> if you right. disdain politics, you're not going to get you know, the kind of recognition that you need to, uh, to become a judge. And, uh, and that is the name of the game. You know, the, the process is either constitutionally defined or, uh, or defined by statute. It's uh, the only game in town. So let me, let me turn now back to Abney. Abney is now, you know, well over 1,500 members, maybe even 1,600. We're doing a lot of things. And one of the things that I've been able to do through Abney, I was a co-executive director of a rising tide of hate and violence against Asian Americans in New York City during COVID-19, uh, impact causes and solutions. I was a co-executive director with Karen King, uh, who was then at Paul Weiss and is now of counsel at Movillo. Um, and we've been able to use that as a tool of advocacy and education. Uh, as we're talking now in May of 2021, uh, we're in the middle of a wave of anti-Asian violence and harassment because of COVID-19. And um, that's been one of the things that Abney has been able to do uh, in part because we've gotten so big and we have resources. Um, do you wanna talk a little bit about the present day activities leading into maybe what the future uh, uh, can hold for Abney? Well, I'm glad that, uh, that Abney has, uh, has taken on um, issues that affect the greater society and not just focused exclusively on issues in the legal community. I think that uh, uh, Abney has been um, uh, progressively becoming more involved uh, in those issues. The anti-Asian uh, American violence that we've seen uh, in, uh, in the last year is certainly something that, that has to be uh, addressed and it has to be addressed by 
by people with the organizational and legal sophistication of organizations such as Abney, because uh, it, is, it is multifaceted. It's not just uh, uh, one or two mindless bigots who attack uh, uh, vulnerable Asians. Uh, we saw in the last administration the encouragement of, um, of divisiveness and uh, the singling out of groups for, uh, for criticism and for mockery. Uh, those have to be dealt with uh, legally and they have to be dealt with uh, by encouraging public awareness. And we're in a position, Abney, other organizations like Abney are in a position to do that because as lawyers, we have the ability to articulate the, uh, the issues and to propose solutions. I uh, have been involved in this. Uh, I've been to the demonstrations, some of the demonstrations that have occurred uh, as to anti-Asian violence. I see some of the signs, <laughs> some of the signs, uh, you know, are appalling <laughs> that I, I see. They're, they're well-intentioned, but they're, uh, uh, they don't get, you know, the message that I'm speaking of uh, across. You know, you can't, you just can't express a, a message of, of anger, resentment, and bitterness. You have to get at the root causes of these problems. And I think that um, uh, one of the root causes is lack of education. Lack of education. We, um, we don't have uh, either in our school curriculums enough on, um, on Asian American history and the Asian American experience. I, I saw a, uh, a comment that was made by a high ranking Department of Education official touring Stuyvesant High School saying publicly, this looks like Chinatown around here. Now, if you've got an attitude like that coming from a, a leading administrator, uh, then you're going to have an attitude like that perhaps coming from a parent who passes it on to children. Uh, all of these things have to be addressed uh, at the grassroots uh, level. It's something that requires an emphasis on the, uh, on the rightful place that Asian Americans have in society, in, in American society. When I was uh, a child, uh, I, I was taught or, or thought that, you know, European accents were charming, <laughs> but Asian accents uh, were, were laughable and the subject of mockery. And uh, again, those attitudes come from, from the home. They come from, uh, from uh, the most basic of sources. I, I uh, emphasize uh, that that Asian American lawyers in particular should be out there in the educational process. I take every opportunity that I can and have to speak at, um, at, at forums. I, I've spoken in, in public in middle and high schools uh, about issues. I did this before uh, the current um, uh, anti-Asian violence trend emerged over here. Just to speak about you know, Asians, uh, their place, uh, their place in American history and what they're about, uh, how that it's not a monolithic group either. <laughs> the heritages of Asians uh, is, is more varied than, than European heritages. So this is uh, you know, the message that I've been uh, trying to, uh, to bring across. And that is uh, as lawyers uh, who are dedicated to, um, 
upholding the rule of law, we have to be in the forefront of, uh, of teaching, educating, and demonstrating that uh, you, have, uh, you have Asian Americans in, in the mainstream. Asian American lawyers uh, are only now beginning to be recognized as being mainstream. I don't think that uh, Asian physicians uh, have that same issue. My, my, uh, my wife is a physician, and uh, uh, there's certainly, I think, a, a greater recognition of, of Asians in, in healthcare than there are lawyers right now. But our, our numbers are, are great enough now where we can, um, we can make that statement. Thank you so much. I, I think you know there, there's. I think uh, that 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 about sums it up. Uh, you know, in terms of sort of where we have been, yes, uh, where where we're going and where we would like to go. You know, thank you for sharing your American story. Well, you're very welcome, and thank you for um, for taking the time, and thank you for um, thank you for bringing these issues forward, which I think are, are very important, and and they have to continue. I I think that. Uh, the next thing we have to be watchful of is, um, is tensions in, in Asia involving China and the United States, the allies in the United States, the allies of China. That's the next uh, emerging issue of great concern for Asian Americans. And as we know, uh, it, um, the bias, the prejudices, the, um, the physical assaults are just not limited to those uh, of a certain background. When it comes to anti-Asian tension, it affects all Asians. That's right. That's right. Well, uh, Judge Randling, thank you so much. It's You're very welcome. Here. Yeah, and um, I want to thank all the listeners for tuning in to this episode of the Historical Society of the New York Courts podcast. For more episodes, please visit our website at history.nycourts.gov. That's history.nycourts.gov. Court.gov. Thank you so much.